0: Welcome, Welcome. from Alpha to Omega. Omega. Hello, and welcome to the 14th episode of From Alpha to Omega. Today is Saturday, the 14th of September 2012, and I'm your host, Tom O'Brien. Today's show has been brought to you by the serial sponsor, David B the first time sponsors Cheryl M and Paul K and the Virgin monthly subscriber Jason L thanks for your most generous donations if you too would like to help keep the show on the road please click on the donate buttons on the podcast website if you are interested in what is occupying my mind from day to day you can check out From Alpha to Omega group on Facebook, where you can say hello and give your own two cents. Today's guest is Doug Lane. Doug is a fiction writer, blogger, pop philosopher, and political radical. He is also the host of the most excellent Diet Soap podcast. Doug's novel Billy Moon 1968 is due out from Tor Books in 2013, and he has a new monthly podcast coming out in September with Derek C. Varn called Pop the Left, where they both hope to give a critical analysis of leftist politics from a leftist's perspective. So let's jump right into the interview. Well, first of all, Doug, I'd just like to say that I'm a great fan of your podcast and it was a big, big influence on me getting from Alpha to Omega off the ground. I'm glad to be able to be interviewed and, and be on your show. So I'm always thrilled to hear that. You know,
1: I started doing, actually, you're the first person who's ever told me to start a pod- podcast because they were inspired by mine. So I'm very thrilled by that. But I started podcasting because of KMO's podcast, The Sea Realm. But I kind of feel like at first, especially I was responding to KMO a lot. I was kind of following his lead and trying to offer my thoughts on the same subjects that he was covering and just a slightly different perspective. And and that was he was really welcoming and and kind of helped me get some of his audience to listen to my show
0: and stuff. So it was really good. For those who haven't heard your podcast, can you uh, fill them in on what it's all about? Well, I can, uh, although it, it's
1: always shifting a bit as to what it's all about. My podcast was reviewed for, on another podcast that reviews podcasts and the name of which I forget. I'll send you a link to it. But the reviewer described it as a kind of an elective philosophy course that you might get in college, like, you know, jazz and existentialism, that kind of thing. And I guess that was a pretty accurate description because what I try to do is combine Things I'm interested in or things I understand, like uh, popular culture and movies, and with things I'm trying to understand, uh like Hegelian philosophy. So that's where it's at right now. It's Often I'm talking uh, to people who are experts about a philosophy, a Marx, a Hegel, um and I, I'm really glad. I'm really always amazed at who's listening to my show, and sometimes it's a little intimidating. Like I'll have college professors write to me to say thank you, like philosophy professors somewhere, like telling me that I did a good job on something, and I'm like, wow, well, you would know, and I really wouldn't, <laughs> but thank you. I would say that American philosopher, uh, philosophy professors are less likely to understand some of the things I'm covering than maybe uh, I am sometimes, because they, they don't cover it. They're, they're analytical philosophies, and they just don't read Hegel, and they don't read Heidegger, or what have you, but really, the the guy for me is Hegel right now, and what's really the other thing I found really interesting is the people who have read Hegel at the university level aren't in the philosophy department usually at all. They're usually artists, art historians, or literature students and then professors are of, of teaching Hegel. So it's kind of odd. It's, it's where Marx ended up as well. Sometimes, uh, like I have an interview with someone who's uh, an anthropologist, I believe, or sociologist, actually, and she's doing a stu- her, her thesis on happiness as a concept. Uh, and being critical of the history of happiness it's very, you know, it was a very interesting interview
0: what is the history of happiness well she says that happiness is a is a warm gun as john lennon said <laughs> she she didn't say that although
1: uh i i agree with uh, lennon there but she said that happiness as a historical concept and as a as a political goal has a, a shorter uh, history than we might think that it's kind of part of the neoliberal agenda uh, to focus people on individual happiness rather than on collective goods or collective projects. Uh, that's that was her starting point. The other thing she said that was really interesting was that happiness isn't cumulative. That is, you don't just build up a store of happiness, or you don't create a society that just create produces more and more and more happiness. That Happiness is a kind of emotion that people feel in order to sustain their life, and there's a certain amount of it that's worth, you know, that is kind of
0: functional. And uh, there's too much of it; it's probably not functional. And that you don't have the utilitarian bit where more is always better, right? No, you you just it's it's like saying that uh, our oxygen levels we need to keep
1: rising the amount of oxygen that is in our body. <laughs> like there's no actually there's only a certain amount that you actually can use. And I think the same thing is true of happiness. It's like you don't really need.
0: Well, it. oxygen is a, uh, oxygen is toxic after a certain level. Right. <laughs> it's probably, probably the same with happiness. Right. explains Michael Jackson. <laughs> right. So, so th- these studies that
1: come out to say, well, people are no more happy today or even less happy today than they were, you know, at the turn of the century or when they didn't have electricity or w- what have you. Well, it's a kind of a dumb kind of study because you're not really measuring anything that can accumulate. You know, yeah, of course, when people lived in, you know, without technological wonders, they were happy to live without them. Um, That doesn't mean their quality of life was better. It just means that they were able to be happy in the way that humans need to be in order to survive in those kind of conditions. So happiness isn't a good measure of
0: social progress. So what is it specifically about Hegel that really floats your boat? A lot of your programs are about Hegel. Well, I started reading the Phenomenology of,
1: of uh, Mind or Phenomenology of Spirit in order to kind of try to run a philosophy workshop through my podcast. And so you hear a lot about Hegel because I'm reading Hegel very slowly and he's tough. <laughs> and so you get more than one episode about Hegel because it takes time to try to summarize that book. I'm drawn to Hegel because I see for two reasons. One is because uh, my hero, Slavoj Zizek, you know, says he's good. So I listened to him. But then the, the other reason and a much more substantial reason is because as an undergraduate, I was very interested in and troubled by the problem of perception. Um, and not just as an undergraduate, but as a, a young person who is experimenting, uh, with psychoactive or psychedelic drugs and reading Robert Anton Wilson and Philip K. Dick. The problem of perception, how do we know that what we see is in any way related to what is real, has kind of been a central question in my creative life. So Hegel is interesting to me because he actually seems to be able to solve that problem in philosophy. He comes along and, after Kant, presents a kind of idealism that doesn't end up with solipsism like George Berkeley. It doesn't end up with some some of the other problems. And while I'm not entirely convinced, if I were to be convinced, I would actually have to agree that the problem of perception, the way we know what the images in our mind relate to the actual world, would have been solved in a very kind of counterintuitive way by Hegel, which is basically to say that the gap between our minds and the world outside of us is not merely a product of our minds but is in fact ontologically necessary that it's actually what allows the universe to exist and that this relationship between the outside and the inside is, is a necessary one and and, and maybe the foundation of of reality
0: how convinced are you by his argument ah uh,
1: i'm fairly i'm fairly convinced but there's a step that i you know i haven't gotten into the end of the phenomenology and i haven't read some of his other books, I like Science of Logic. So far, though, I'm I'm fairly convinced. I, I I mean, I really like it. It's like a an itch that I'm constantly scratching to think about uh, this solution. I would say I'm fairly convinced by it, but I I couldn't I couldn't tell you it's rock solid, knocked down, can't be discredited, because there is there are some critiques of it that. While I I think I can knock down, I'm not positive, like Derrida's critique of of what I take to be Hegel, but it's actually a critique of structuralism, which talks about how you never arrive at the origin, and so you can never arrive at the true gap either between what's inside and outside, that that division is always eluding you
0: a zeno's paradox kind of
1: yeah it is yeah it is kind of like that but i i i would h- hardly say that i'm an expert on derrida either i'm not i'm just i happen to know of that argument that he launched against structuralism which i think also applies to hegel but i have not read derrida in, in depth either and i have actually had no plans to <laughs> but I, rec- I you know when i was young I, I decided i wanted to read philosophy you know major in philosophy uh, at the undergraduate level I thought I would go and just explore the uh, li- university library for contemporary philosophy, and I came upon, upon Derrida, and I started to read it, and I tried to read it, and I realized that I was just a dumb, stupid person. <laughs> that I had, I, could, I just could not even begin to understand why I wasn't understanding Derrida. It was He was so elliptical, and, and uh, I was so far away from being able to have the basic vocabulary to try to... Grasp Derrida.
0: I think I heard Chomsky talking about Derrida and saying that he couldn't understand it either. So you're probably in good company. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
1: But not understanding something is is not a refutation of it, though. I just want to
0: point that out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, To say, oh, I can't understand it. Can you tell the audience uh, who Slavoj Žižek is? Uh, he's my
1: idol right now. He's a very popular contemporary Marxist Lacanian a philosopher from Slovenia. I don't know a lot about his biography. I know at one point he actually ran for president. But his first big book was The Sublime Object of Ideology, and he's had many others. Maybe another big book that he's written is called The Parallax View, and that's actually how I discovered him. I had been writing a a novel called The Brainwash Brand, which is under option right now, but was not uh, scheduled for publication yet. This is several years ago. And I was, I watched the Warren Beatty movie, The Parallax View. Uh, and I thought it would be fun to try to read the novel that that movie's based on. So I put it on hold at the library, I thought. <laughs> but instead of getting the novel, The Parallax View, I got Slovoj Žižek's book. So I started reading it. And I thought he was very interesting. He was a little difficult, but not uh, like Derrida. And then I kind of looked him up online and started watching his lectures and reading his book. And I eventually returned The Parallax View to the library only partially read, but now I own a copy. So slowly, over time, I became a very big fan of Silvoj Zizek. And it was the combination of reading him and the economic crisis of 2008 that kind of turned me away from what had been a long-term fascination with guys like Noam Chomsky and, and the American anarchist scene towards uh, some sort of new style of Marxism uh, that hopefully got out from under the taint of Stalin and, and Mao and and. 20th century marxism
0: i uh came across zizek in a in a fairly random way as well i was just in a shop and there was a dvd of zizek people following around going to talks and i don't know why for some reason it was like four pounds and i bought it i just think he, he looks kind of crazy and <laughs> uh he sounds even crazier right. but he, he's a pretty cool he's a pretty cool man
1: yeah well, I would say that he's the kind of guy that is a clown. Basically, he's a very good thinker. I wouldn't necessarily think he is uh, uh, would be a terrific neighbor or anything. <laughs> he probably wouldn't be, uh, and uh, I, you know, I wouldn't necessarily recommend him as a friend or anything. He has a picture of Stalin in his house, right? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, but what's compelling to me about Zizek? Is the quality of his thought after after all is said and done? I mean, he's very funny, and he, he does definitely seduce you into to listening to him. But the difference between Slavoj Zizek and Noam Chomsky is that with Noam Chomsky, you feel like you're being given given sort of a a role model, a moral authority that you can kind of strive to be that kind of person, maybe that kind of activist, and that kind of thinker. With Slovoi Žižek, you're presented with a neurotic mess of a man who you don't really want to emulate in your everyday life or or in any other kind of practice, but who you want to listen to. And, uh, you know, like my other – another heroic figure in my life would be Philip K. Dick, uh, a science fiction writer whose politics I don't really necessarily agree with at all, but whose writing was – just brilliant, and whose life I would never want to try to emulate, and who died, you know, at 51, but who nevertheless you just feel compelled to listen to, and I think that's the way I would would look at Savoy Zizek. Uh, As a a leftist, he's not giving you a role model. He's giving you, he's trying to compel you to think, and that's kind of a different thing than what uh, a lot of people on the left tend to do. So, to,
2: uh, to, to finish with another nasty joke. You know what they try to give us the good news, like all the news you are giving us are this, obscure falsifications, good news. But you know what are these? Good news today, those in power, are promising us. Let me give you another wonderful Jewish-American joke that was told to me by a friend recently. A guy has his wife at an operation and then talks after the operation with the doctor. And the doctor tells him, listen, first the good news, your wife will survive, she will even live longer than you. And then, uh, what's the bad news? The doctor says, the bad news is, you know, there are some problems, like as the result of the operation, she will no longer be able to control her anal muscles, so excrements will be dripping all the time, then there will be some strange fluid all the time escaping from her vagina, no sex, then she will not be able to blah, 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 and of course the guy gets more and more into a panic, no? my God, and then you know what the doctor does then? He taps the guy on the shoulder and says, "No, no, don 't worry. this was just a joke. Everything is okay. She died during the operation <laughs> that 's the good news that they are giving us at the end. You know. Aha, I surprised. No dirty words. you noticed it. no dirty words." <laughs>
0: Do you think that your show focuses somewhat on the teleological aspect of philosophy, the cause of things? Yeah, I do, and uh,
1: on the that aspect of politics too. God would be the great theological principle in the world. You know, if he was, a, if there was a creator of the universe, then he would be the theological center of of the universe because he was the first cause. Another way to think of it is. Along the lines of just ontology, uh, what it is to be something, what's the foundation of being, what's the rock solid bottom floor
0: of existence? What drives you towards the teleological arguments, that section of philosophy, so much? Well, I've always, I've always been compelled to try to solve that problem of perception,
1: getting at reality, is. Part of that. I mean, you, if you don't feel like there is a way to get to reality, then the problem of perception, while still present, probably isn't something that bothers you very much. But I, so there's always this kind of assumption if you are worried about the problem of perception, about how you know you're not dreaming and that kind of thing, then you're always going to be uh, assuming that there is a real reality that you can, you could get to and experience outside of the dream. So that's one thing. The other thing is that I think it's actually necessary for thought for there to be a theological or a ontological foundation that people who claim to be operating without one are not. Most of the, that those are the people who are least aware of their limitations, or the most who are the most ideological.
0: What do you mean by that?
1: Well, why? Well, okay. Robert Anton Wilson seems to be a great critic of what he calls. Reality tunnels, what I would call ideology. You know, he, the 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 fact is that you have everyone has a way of looking at the world. You have different uh, approaches to reality, and none of them are the absolute truth. The map can never be the territory. Um, so, uh, Robert Anton Wilson says, "Well, you should be able to choose, you know, your reality tunnels and know when you're choosing to look at the world like a scientist, and when you're looking." at the world like an artist, when you're looking at the world like a Republican, when you're looking at the world like a Marxist or a feminist, and realize that each one of these things is a, just a reality tunnel, and to incorporate what he calls maybe logic, things may be this way, they may be another, um, and that sounds all fine and good, but the problem is that it, he supposes that you can get to into a position where you can choose between one reality tunnel and another. Based on something closer to direct experience of reality, in order to be able to choose and get out of one reality tunnel and into another, there has to be somewhere to stand that
0: isn't in a reality tunnel. How do you know that what you're doing is not already in a reality tunnel? you actually, well, my argument would be you are always in one reality tunnel or another. Exactly.
1: And there may be other reality tunnels inside reality tunnels and so on and so forth. So recognizing the necessity for ideology realizing that you're always going to be kind of uh, offering an interpretation is also a way to to point out that you're always making some sort of original presupposition. You're always saying, this is what it means to exist. This is my ontological presupposition. This is a theological uh, cause. And, you know, you can never actually really justify that, usually. I mean, I, the only one that comes close to really justifying his presupposition is Hegel. Which is, and his is that there always has to be a presupposition, and that's his first presupposition. <laughs> but it seems to be actually self-supporting.
0: Well, a similar, a similar thing. And one of the guests we had on was a mathematician, philosopher, an expert in Gödel's theorem. It sounds like the same thing. You always have to choose your axioms. You always have to make a choice at some stage, right? Yeah, and recognizing that is both puts you in a kind of an absurd position and a
1: liberating one at the same time. But that's why I'm drawn to the ontol- to ontological questions, is because I want to uh, get a grip on how it might be possible to choose your axioms, how it might be possible to choose your reality tunnel without ever stepping into a position of true objectivity, without ever getting out of a reality tunnel. Have you read
0: any Popper? I haven't. I should probably. I've only read, you know, one of these, the idiot's guy to Karl Popper. He, he kind of talks to the same thing where he thinks, you know, everything is a probability. You never know anything; it's a probability. But you know, some probabilities are bigger than the others, right? Which ideology is you think is most likely, and make a choice. If you don't make a choice, what do you have? I sent you a copy of my book that's
1: coming out next year, the Billy Moon, and it comes to my to me now because. Part of the premise of that book is you get uh, you've got a situation there in France in May nineteen sixty eight where the students were actually trying to choose their own axioms or create their own new ontological foundation for a new kind of society. What goes wrong in my book is that the main character or one of the main characters is unable to stop looking for the authentic and for something that will be truly self-supporting and make a choice
0: just keeps digging deeper, literally, and actually
1: at one point digging in the earth, trying to find the, the ultimate ground. So the book is called Billy Moon. It's called Billy Moon 1968 tentatively right now. It's coming out from Tor Books next year. It's a novel about the Paris strikes of May 1968 and, and Christopher Robin Milne, the the adult who man who was the basis for the popular uh, children's story character from Winnie the Pooh, Christopher Robin. It's being retitled... It could end up being something like the reinvention of Christopher Robin. My editor wanted to call it the reincarnation of Christopher Robin, which the book isn't about reincarnation. So if it ends up with that title, that will be a surprise to me.
0: So you sent me this about five or six days ago and I've read about the first hundred pages. It's very surreal.
1: <laughs> yeah,
0: <laughs> it's very surreal. And a few months ago, uh, when I donated to your podcast, you sent me over a wave of mutilation. It was like a novella. And they both seem to be in the same kind of vein. But for me, this book, the the novel as a genre, nearly allows the surreal to, to seem both more normal and also more surreal at the same time, where it gives space between when, you know, things are going fine and everything is not surreal for 10 pages and then something extraordinarily odd happens. <laughs> to me, it seems to be nearly have more impact in the novel. Well, the novel... Went through several
1: revisions, and I finally came to a point where I actually did pull back on the amount of strange things that were happening in the book so that each thing that did happen would have a more impact. I think Wave of Mutilation, which was a metafictional book and shorter, was sort of an unrelenting stream of oddness, (laughs) and this was more systematic and measured and and one of the things about it is having christopher robin as a character he was a real person i'd read his memoirs he's a very grounded man why did you choose him out of everybody to go for a couple reasons one is because you know the french strike in may of 1968 was a student strike and it was spearheaded by you know university students and and young workers and so it was a youthful Uh, rebellion and and attempted revolution in France at that point. So it was associated with a certain kind of culture, youth culture that we all know. And I mean, it it was, it's associated with the 60s youth culture and, and all the, all the negatives and positives that go along with that. And I kind of wanted to put someone who uh, was not part of that into the book, uh, but who yet had some sort of position within it in other words christopher robin is defined by his youth but he's a fully adult man in the book i have him think about how as at the turn of the century when he was born he was a new kind of child that was being invented at that time to go hand in hand with the advances in industrial production and and uh, consumer production You know, children were kind of just little adults who had responsibilities up until a certain point, and then they became something more along the lines of pets. Pet consumers. Yeah. So you had to buy them, you know, the toys, and they, they just, there was something different about childhood as a concept is maybe more. Uh, as we know it anyway, it's a, maybe a little newer concept than we think. And so I thought Christopher Robin was a great example of kind of questioning conventional notions about childhood and also a way to make him somebody who would connect to the students and their struggle for a new identity and new, new politics. Uh, also, uh, I floated that on a, my live journal as a concept and somebody told me it was marketable. I always want to make <laughs> as much money as I can. <laughs> you know, a marketable book about May 1968 and it's a very difficult thing to pull off. I don't know
0: how well I've done, but... Is he dead in real life? Yeah, he died in 1997, yeah. So you can write about him. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You're not going to get done for libel. Well, I guess, I, I suppose his his estate could come after me.
1: The estate could come after me if I was writing more about Pooh. If I was putting Pooh in there, because then, then that's copywritten mythical character. Disney would come after me probably, <laughs> but I'm not writing about Pooh so much.
0: Mr. Hanky, the Christmas poo, Small and brown, he comes from you. Sit on
1: the toilet, here he
0: comes. Squeezing tween your festive buns. A present
1: from down below. Spreading joy with a howdy ho.
0: He's seen the love
1: inside of you, cause he's a piece
0: of poo. The son of the, of Christopher in the book is called Carl. Yeah. Is that after Marx? Yeah,
1: (laughs) that was an easy thing to do. It's Carl for Karl Marx, absolutely. And, of course, Carl in the book is nothing like Karl Marx. He is autistic. Yeah, and that was completely, you know, Christopher Robin Milne, the real man, had a daughter, not a son, and she had cerebral palsy and not. So I gave him a disabled son, but one that fit more with my surrealist ideas than than his real daughter did
0: you've mentioned philip k dick as one of your big influences who else is a writer there are
1: a number. I mean, Kafka is one. I mean, who, who doesn't love Kafka? J.G. Ballard is a, a big influence. Kurt Vonnegut, I quite like a, a lot. Haruki Murakami. Laurie Moore, uh, for the metafictional side of things. Yeah, Jeff Nicholson. Have you ever heard of Jeff Nicholson? Uh, he wrote a book called Street Sleeper. London's Bleeding, I think, is one he wrote. He's a, a great kind of comedic. The blurb about him would be, he's the poor man, uh, Roland Bart. Uh, John Barth is another for if you want to look for an influence on Wave of Mutilation, the metafictional writer of Lost in the Funhouse would be another influence on me. Right now I'm reading, I'm trying to think about writing a mystery and I'm reading uh, Jim Thompson and uh, Agatha Christie and uh, Elmore Leonard. (laughs) So hopefully those will seep into my blood a little bit.
0: You're also reading Marxist Das Kapital. How's that going?
1: Oh, It's slow going. I haven't picked it up. In, in, I mean, I started reading chapter one again for my most recent podcast so that I could start talking about it. I'm reading that with my son, who's 15, almost 16, and I want him to have read it before he leaves home so that when he leaves, he can you know, restart the revolution. I think it's good discipline, actually, to read it, and it's worthwhile. It's a great book. I, I don't try to write that way. But sometimes end up writing that way, despite myself. It's it's not exactly a f- f- quick read or anything.
0: I've read an Irish author, I don't know if you ever heard of him, called John McGahern. He's a famous Irish author. And I read one of his books and it's called That They May See the Rising Sun. And you read it and you kind of go along you go, this, this story is, yeah, it's okay, it's normal, normal. And then you kind of, you finish the book and all of a sudden you go... Oh God, that was, that was amazing. <laughs> you know, and I can, you can, I can ask myself, at what point did it become amazing? Absolutely no idea. Like I, I couldn't analyze it. I couldn't say, well, if I write 11% slower, it'll be much better. As a writer, how do you process this? Is it completely subconscious or how much of it is learned for you or just practice? Well,
1: it's a lot of it's learned. I mean, I, um, and I'm not. You know, I, I feel like I'm always learning new things and, and like how to use a comma, for instance. Um, so, uh, but yeah, it's all, I think you can absolutely learn it and you don't have to rely on the subconscious. However, I have taken up recently a, an approach to writing, which comes from my new hero, Slovoj Žižek, which I think is really liberating, uh, which is that the first thing you do is you sit down and you write everything out, but as notes. This is not the actual final draft or anything remotely close to it. You don't expect to use any of the actual language that you've just written down.
0: You you use sentences,
1: you use full out sentences, right? But you don't think of this as anything but notes. And and you know you can write like I'll, when I'm writing a short story I might even write down uh, I need a scene maybe in a park. Where the protagonist proves his love for the uh, for the woman in his life, or something like that. And I, I mean, I'll actually write sentences. I'm writing sentences, but they are so far away from any sentences that would ever make it into the story that um, I'm liberated from trying to write particularly well. Uh, you know, I also will write sentences that are a little closer to what will actually make it, but but never expecting any of it to stay. And then after I'm done with that, all I have to do is edit. you take the notes and you say well now I just need to knock this into shape so that it can be readable to anyone and I'm just editing now I'm not actually coming up with any ideas I'm not actually doing the real writing I've done that already so I find that's very liberating just in terms of being productive Uh, although I'm not nearly as productive as I'd like to be when I am that's an approach that that
0: works well Um, It sounds like uh, that Borghese did that but then never expanded it have I ever read Louis, is it Louis Borges, the Argentinian writer? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've read. Oh, yeah, I've read. Like, it's just so the, condensed. It's like he's just wrote the formulation for the plot <laughs> right? <laughs> and right. then thrown in, thrown in some big words and then say, oh, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> right. He wrote like some like reviews of books that were never written
1: and things like that, too.
0: Right. Yeah. I had one book of his book of short stories, The Labyrinth.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I've read that.
0: Each short story is like three pages or two and a half pages long. Yeah. Um, yeah, I lost the book halfway through reading it. I, I, I was very relieved. It was so intense. <laughs> well, I I, have, I like Boarhead's
1: quite a lot, and but I am, I guess, writing something like what he would write as a as a like a book review or something. But then taking it and and maybe putting in the fleshing it out a bit more.
0: I am being facetious here. I <laughs> <get it. laughs> I'm not literally saying they were like that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> now you say you're being facetious, I'm going to take you in utterly seriously. So (laughs) (laughs) Borges was brilliant I think you need to go back And have that intense Experience again Did you read the book The Library of Babel I basically Completely ripped that Story off And wrote a a Short story called Identity is a Construct In which There are Robots That are In a Big Giant Library In a an intergenerational spaceship going through the galaxy, and basically Bore has his library of babble re- told with androids that may or may not be really androids. <laughs>
0: So you're starting a new podcast. What is it called? Pop the Left. It's with C. Derek Varn,
1: and I might get this guy Nicholas Pell on occasionally. He's a journalist and a, and a kind of a rabid Marxist. And the idea of it is to um, take a critical look at the left from a leftist perspective. It's really kind of born out of our frustration with certain kinds of conversations that are being going on between leftists online, um, but also with the failure or the perceived failure of the Occupy Wall Street movement and the uprisings of 2011 in general and trying to take a hard look at what the left didn't do and where there are built-in limitations on the left that need to be overcome. That's that's coming up. I I haven't edited the first episode yet, although we've got a couple of conversations in the archive. I'm thinking I'm going to put that up in late September, so coming up sooner than I think. I look forward to that. That's probably going to be a monthly podcast, not a weekly one.
0: Do you think that the left suffers from perhaps, you know, over-theorizing and not enough activism? Um, I think I might suffer from that, but I don't generally think in the
1: United States anyway that that's a problem for the what is generally the left in the U.S. I think that there is a kind of leftism that is on university campuses uh, amongst students That might over theorize and might take theory to be the same, you know, uh, basically take its action. Yeah, taking its action, but also thinking that holding the right position and developing your thought alone and having the right persona or, you know, striking the right pose is enough in some way. uh, And that mistakes careerism for some sort of radical politics. I think that that exists in the American left. But outside of the university system, I think for the most part, uh, most leftists are some kind of activists and that there is an aversion to thought within activism that's much stronger than any kind of tendency to reject activism amongst theorists. I I happen to just be a writer. you know. I've come to the conclusion, I've done a lot of activist work in the past, I've come to a point where I've realized I'm not going to feel guilty about presenting my thoughts and doing the writing and doing a podcast and not hitting the streets as much. I mean, I went to the occupying encampment and I was there the night the police came. Uh, I wasn't particularly courageous or anything. (laughs) Um, I left, uh, you know, got out of the way and didn't get arrested. But I've been around the activist scenes and when things are happening, I want to be there as a kind of maybe a radical journalist or something. But I don't feel like uh, everyone has to be on-the-ground organizer, and that those people who are might do well
0: to step back a bit and and think. I think there's an aversion to thought that actually needs to be overcome. I spent a good bit of time in the Occupy London, and I found that at least 60 to 70% of their effort was just figuring out process or logistics. It, it struggled to get to any greater level of organization than Correct. just a general assembly. I think that there is room for... Theorizing on what actually people actually want. Yeah, I participated in a, one or two conversations
1: in Occupy Portland, and felt that there were it was a limitation in the kind of thinking that was going on theoretically there. But I didn't get super involved. When I was involved in the the peace movement in two thousand one, two thousand two, I was told directly that they just the the kinds of conversations about what we want as an alternative to this system and what kind of politics we want to fully endorse and what our ideology really should be as a peace group and what's necessary uh, if you're really going to stop war. Those kinds of conversations were too divisive, they said. A lot of people were just very reluctant to to go into it, and they thought that they could operate as an effective peace activist group without ever coming to any conclusions about economics or or even, in some ways, imperialism or foreign policy. Just Sort of a single issue, which is we are for peace (laughs) without any context. Peace and hugs. (laughs) Peace and hugs, right. Yeah, we actually were some of the things at times that the right would accuse us of, you know, just mindless hippies. That was a very troubling period to after 9-11 to realize that the peace movement just didn't have the fortitude or the desire really as a national movement to even attempt to stop the war. That, that actually wasn't what it was about. Like, the invasion of Iraq happened, but the peace group that I was involved with that was supposedly trying to protest that had planned what they were going to do the day that the bombs fell on Iraq, a good six months before the bombs fell. So we had that protest already all fully planned out well in advance of it actually being necessary to do. I found that to be cynical unconsciously kind of cynical and defeatist. Um, And I think that's a problem with the left in general.
0: It's like people have really swallowed the pill of Maggie Thatcher, that there is no alternative. I think like it's really gotten into the souls of the left. Yeah, yeah, I do too. And of all walks of life, you know, academics,
1: activists, uh, union organizers, just working everyday people, there's a real sense that there's no alternative. And at the very same time, there's a sense that the system we're in is going to lead us off the edge of a cliff and will destroy all of civilization, you know. So there's no alternative to the absolute death spiral that we all think to, seem to think we're in, which it's just, I, you know, that's just not true.
0: There are alternatives. Maybe they're not all good ones. What hope do you have for podcasts like yours or independent media being able to get easy access from the Internet and trying to, you know, basically go against corporal media. I don't think of my podcast as something that's going to be able to challenge uh, the consensus. No, not particularly like yours or mine, but just the nature of the of the opportunity that's there, the distributed nature of the internet. You know, lots of people can set up their own things like we do that can maybe reach thousands of people. And then if you have a thousand of them, God knows the effect that you have. What Do you think that there is any hope oh yeah i think definitely think there's a hope um i don't know um
1: if podcasts are i think that uh, obviously i think being doing a podcast is worthwhile and that everyone uh, should listen to my podcast particularly and that if they did then the revolution <laughs> come tomorrow but what type of revolution doug? it'll be the doug lane revolution it should be a surreal yeah, yeah. <laughs> i'll be installed as the grand poobah
0: You've thought about this already, much like that march.
1: <laughs> but the the truth though, is, uh, the, uh, you're actually asking me a question that I don't quite know the answer to. And I don't I don't want to say something pat. I don't want to say, I think it's the podcasting and internet information sharing is going to be a tool for radical political change. I don't know that it is. I kind of feel as though it is obviously a benefit to organizers and to thinkers and to trying to get people to engage and challenge the main system but it's i think there's a tendency to believe that these kinds of networks are not themselves kind of directed by the commodity form and that they that they are more liberating than they are i think that we just have to be not wary of, of the internet but always critical of any kind of solution that just relies on technology or or, or information sharing alone i think there's some something's got to give the, the honest truth is i don't quite know why we're not moving into some new kind of society and at the same time i feel the same way everyone does who thinks it's impossible but i kind of intellectually think we ought to be doing it there, i don't quite understand intellectually why we're not but the feeling doesn't go away And so you asked me a very simple pragmatic question, like, you know, does your podcast going to help? Uh, does this kind of information sharing going to help? And I, I feel like saying, uh, maybe what are we, what's the problem? I mean, what are we, what are we actually trying to do? If we figured that out, maybe we'd know what was going to help better.
0: And maybe the podcast will help us figure
1: that out. So yes, they will help.
0: Yeah, but but like my fear is that, you know, apart from the people I actually know that listen to it, I might never even meet somebody who has listened to it. And, And what kind of organizational power structures form from something like that? Right. You know, that it's so distributed that in the end of the day, you have to get your ass off from behind your computer screen and you're watching YouTube and actually go and do something real, you know? Right.
1: Well, I don't know. I think this, uh, the separation between the real, this is back to Hegel, you know, that we tend to think that there's a separation between the real and the ideological, the, between the thing and its representation, uh, that may not be nearly as strong a separation as, as we, we pretend. And that, uh, that whenever we go out into act in the activist world, we're always mediated. We're always being, you know, presented to one another through some form of mediation. And so, when you're doing things that are obviously just representations or, or theory, um, you're actually maybe providing ways for people to go out in the world again and mediate themselves in a new way.
0: Well, thanks very much, Doug, for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me.
2: Science the a sea of darkness When there is no sun sky is a sea of darkness When there is no sun to light the way When there is no sun to
1: light the way There is no day
2: There is no day There's only darkness Eternal sea of darkness
0: On this episode Sky you heard the, the new way. theme tune The Order of the Pharaonic Jesters there by Sun Ra and his orchestra a joke telling Slavoj Žižek accompanied by Luciano Michelini's Frolic there there no the Mr. Hanky the Christmas Pooh song from the TV show South Park and an excerpt from the song One no More day. Robot by the Flaming Lips. You are now listening to Sunra singing Where There Is No Sun, soon to be accompanied by Doug reading an excerpt from his upcoming novel provisionally titled Billy Moon 1968. Thanks for listening, and I hope you join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega.
1: So, this is a section where it's not Christopher Robin, but um, Gilles, uh, who is a student in France that calls Christopher Robin to France, and he's a young boy in this section, and he's visiting the Police Museum in Paris, which I've actually been to, and it's a field trip. In the Police Museum, Gilles admired a glass case displaying brass knuckles and knives of every type switchblade, ivory handled, serrated. He looked at a sharp triangle blade on finger rings, at a set of hooks and ropes. As the tour guide explained, the police evolved at the same rate of speed as the rest of society. In fact, the tour guide explained that police work and the scientific methods the police employed had pushed the general population towards civilization. The tour guide led the young students away from the display cases of torture equipment and to a series of framed photographs around the corner. These were set high on the wall, and the children had to crane their necks to see. Here we see how the police train dogs to sniff out criminals and give chase. Notice how these photographs are in sequence. First, the dog discovers the man and forces him out of his hiding place in the wooden shed. Second, the police dog chases the man, forcing him to climb to safety. In this case, a nearby wood pillar inside the police grounds gives the criminal a way to elevate himself. But then, behold! The third picture shows the policeman arriving. The policeman whistles to the dog, giving instruction, and the job is complete, the tour guide said. Jill's turned away from the sequence and looked at the tour guide. He was a short but thin young man, looked very clean in his thick wool overcoat and with his smartly combed hair. The guide was telling the story of the police, starting over at the beginning, starting with once upon a time.
2: Eternal sea, of Eternal sea of darkness. Eternal sea of darkness. Eternal sea of darkness. Eternal sea of darkness. Darkness of darkness. Darkness. Darkness